No, I didn't actually attempt. Um, I haven't gotten to that point, I guess. The courage, the strength that it takes to be open and honest about this. Instead of just, you know, blaming myself that he's not here anymore. Uh, I was prepared to shoot myself. Um, and I called my family to sort of say goodbye. To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They had found him and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible. I am Timothy Lawson, host and founder of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Podcast and Project. This week, I have medical professional Dr. Craig Bryan. Dr. Bryan has been on the podcast before. In fact, he was with us at the beginning uh, as the first medical professional to step forward and tell us about what we can understand about veteran suicide, PTSD, and trauma-related uh, behavior uh, as it comes on the medical side, and it was really insightful. And he is here this week to talk to us about a recent discovery uh, that they have published, or a recent study, I should say, that they uh, that he has published through the University of Utah's National Center for Veteran Studies. I'm not going to try to explain what the study uh, discovered or what sort of uh, insight that it gave us. So uh, I'll just get right to the interview with Dr. Brian so he can explain. Enjoy. Okay, so Dr. Craig Bryan, uh, you were were with us way back in the beginning. I make it sound like it's a long time ago. It was just, uh, just a couple years ago that you and I spoke last. And we, you were the first medical professional that we had uh, on the show to talk about PTSD and suicide among veterans and how, how PTSD is diagnosed, differences between combat-related and sexual trauma-related PTSD. And it was a really – I just got done listening to it again uh, today to get refreshed on where our conversation started. And uh, it was a really good conversation. I, think, I know my audience got a lot out of it. And today we're going to be talking to you about uh, some discoveries that you've recently published um, on the treatment of PTSD and the uh, risk assessment after treatment. Do I have that right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're the professional, so I'll let you explain uh, what it is the, uh, that your, your study did and what it, uh, what it discovered um, but maybe provide a little context for the audience and then describe what it was that you did and discovered. Yeah, so um, so in this, this particular study, what we had done was we were, we were working with uh, um, you know, a number of researchers actually across the country. And so we're, we're involved in several collaborative efforts. And in this particular effort um, – was uh, coming from a study where we are testing and developing and refining uh, particular psychotherapies and psychological treatments for 
combat-related PTSD. And the, the main results of that research uh, have already been published actually earlier this month. It was published online in a journal where they were finding that um, one particular trauma-focused therapy, it's called cognitive processing therapy or CPT uh, for short, um, which has been found to be very effective for treating PTSD in civilian populations. We were able to demonstrate that it's also effective in military uh, populations for combat-related trauma and seems to do a little bit better than other forms of psychotherapy. Um, so that that's kind of sort of the main study that uh, was was we were working from, and one of the other sort of secondary questions that we had was related to suicide risk. Um, you know, one of the one of the major concerns that a lot of clinicians have when it comes to working with individuals with PTSD is that if you use uh, trauma-focused psychotherapies, um, there's a potential risk that a person will be re-traumatized or will get worse, and that this risk is especially dangerous if someone is thinking about suicide, is high risk, something like that, and the concern being that in addition to kind of making things worse and re-traumatizing them, you might actually um, have a harmful effect that increases their risk for suicide. Um, and so this was the study that we just recently published, the secondary analysis, because this is a, this is a major problem. Um, it, it's, a, I guess, a reasonably legitimate concern, um, but it serves as one of the major barriers for clinicians to provide high-quality, effective therapy to individuals with PTSD. And we really wanted to examine that. Is this concern about inadvertently increasing suicide risk, is that a legitimate concern, or is it just um, something that we're worrying about maybe needlessly? And what we found, the results of the study, were that, no, we probably don't need to worry about increased suicide risk in that um, providing cognitive processing therapy to soldiers with PTSD, it does not increase their suicide risk. And actually what we found was that suicide risk tended to decrease or decline over the course of therapy. So as they started to feel better, not surprisingly, they tended to think about killing themselves less. And so this is a really, really important advance uh, because now we're starting to accumulate several studies finding similar results, saying that contrary to popular opinion, these therapies are actually not only safe, but they might actually be quite beneficial um, to individuals who have PTSD and who are also thinking about killing themselves. So um, can you can you break down a little bit more what exactly cognitive processing therapy is? Like what is the veteran experiencing through that therapy? Yeah, so cognitive processing therapy, or CPT, is a 12-session outpatient psychotherapy. It, it belongs to a family of treatments that are referred to as cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, um, and this is just a specific form of cognitive behavioral therapy that was 
tailored and developed specifically for individuals who've been diagnosed with PTSD. So it's 12 sessions. Usually kind of the, the typical pace is that, uh, you know, individuals will come in and meet with their therapist once per week for an hour, kind of the typical psychotherapy pace. Um, but we've, we have conducted studies showing that you can do this, say, twice a week over the course of six weeks. Um, and we're actually collecting some pilot data now um, here in Utah showing that we can actually do this every day for two weeks and get good outcomes as well. Uh, but regardless of sort of the frequency or the intensity of the treatment, on average, most, uh, most patients will participate in 12 one-hour appointments. And during those appointments, um, you do actually a lot of writing tasks. And so there's a lot of skills practice and a lot of training that goes into this. And we use written assignments as a way to teach new skills about how to think about life events and ascribe meaning to them. And that's really the core of this therapy. It says that, you know, the, the reason why people have PTSD is that they're stuck. The, the natural recovery process has sort of been stalled. It's almost like your, your, your car is stuck in this mud pit and you're spinning your wheels and you're trying to get unstuck, but you're just not able to get traction and move forward. And so we begin the therapy by asking uh, patients to write about, well, why, why do you think this event happened um, and how has it affected your life? Like what has changed as a result of this event that has happened to you? And we use that to identify a patient's sort of beliefs um, and their assumptions about how the world is supposed to work, how I view myself, how I view others. And then over the course of the next 10 to 11 sessions, we teach patients how to think about those beliefs to really evaluate them. Is it helpful? Is it, for instance, a, a very common belief amongst individuals with PTSD is self-blame. So it's all my fault. I should have done something differently. I didn't do enough, you know, things like that. And we'll take a look at those beliefs and look at sort of the facts of the situation and say, you know, is it really helping you to blame yourself? Maybe right now it seems true, um, you know, and that's certainly understandable, but it doesn't seem to be helping you to live the life that you want to live. And so maybe let's take a step back and reconsider these assumptions that you have about your life and about who you are. And what we find is after about 12 sessions of learning those skills, uh, a very large proportion of individuals with PTSD uh, no longer meet criteria for the disorder and they fully recover. Did you find that those individuals learned to stop blaming themselves or to better cope with the guilt? So it, it seems to be a combination of both. And I think different I, – I have found that different patients maybe fall into those different groups. So I've treated plenty of, plenty of service members um, and non-service members as well with PTSD – where it very much they they stopped blaming themselves. They really did um, kind of change their perspectives. And um, and when I when I say they changed their perspective, it's not that they completely said, "Oh well, you know, it was somebody else's fault." Um, but a lot of times, what you get is sort of this more balanced uh, perspective in life. Where, for instance, I've treated plenty of guys who. 
you know, have killed in combat, and maybe there was collateral damage or someone unintended, uh, not intending to be killed, or um, a civilian was killed, and so they felt a lot of guilt and shame about that. Um, and helping them over the course of therapy to recognize that although, you know, it was, you know, that that person's death was the consequence of their actions, um, it was not their intent to kill um, someone. And so what uh, in those situations, a lot of patients will say things like, although it was related to my actions, it's not really my fault. And we differentiate between responsibility versus blame. Um, and sometimes the context, the situation that you're in um, provides important information that really kind of sort of mitigates um, or puts into perspective the roles that we played in these life events. I noticed in the publication there is one uh, there's a section with just one sentence in it. It's suicide attempts during and after treatment. Mm -hmm. There were no suicide attempts during the study uh, study period in either treatment group. Was that to be – did you expect that? Did you anticipate there – I mean, I, did you think that maybe there would be or did, did probabilities show that you – you would encounter at least one? Like, did that surprise you at all, that there were no suicide attempts? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, I was surprised in the sense that we know that PTSD in particular is a significant risk factor for suicidal behavior. And we had, you know, a, a decent proportion of uh, service members enrolled in that study, not the majority, but a, a sizable minority, you know, were thinking about killing themselves at the time that they started the treatment. And so, on the one hand, I, I do think there was an expectation that, you know, there might be a small number of suicide attempts, um, not only during treatment, but also during follow-up. We actually expected if it was going to occur, it was probably going to occur after treatment was over. Um, and so, yeah, when, when we found there were no suicide attempts, there was, so I guess that was a little bit surprising, but at the same time, we also knew that what we were looking at here is a well-validated, highly effective treatment. And so part of the reason we were motivated to do this study is that we actually think that CPT could be a life-saving intervention, and so we weren't necessarily expecting a lot of suicide attempts. Um, and so it was sort of, you know, kind of a balance where we were surprised, but at the same time we were not surprised by that finding. The uh, under method, I see it says, you know, you did 108 soldiers, 100 men and eight women. Um, why did you have difficulty getting women involved in this study? And if so, why do you think that was? Well, I wouldn't say that we had difficulty in ruling women. Uh, it's it's that gender um, distribution there where we had predominantly men is reflective of the military itself. And so um, in all of the treatment studies that we have been doing, because, you know, the military uh, is about 85 to 90 percent male, we're usually finding about 85 to 90 percent of our studies are enrolling men as a result. And so, um, so we haven't had any more difficulty enrolling women than men. It's just that if you're working and doing research in the military, you would expect that the predominant um, or, or the majority of cases that you're going to be working with will be men. 
did so when how many different um causes of PTSD were you treating uh was it primarily combat or, or was it was there other reasons spread out across your study sure there were um you know there there were i would say more than more often than not um service members were reporting exposure to multiple traumatic events during their lives um, the criteria for being enrolled in this treatment study was having a diagnosis of PTSD and having deployed to um you know an area of responsibility or region um, in support of either Operation Iraqi Freedom or Operation Enduring Freedom, so Iraq or Afghanistan. We did not require that uh, the PTSD be directly tied to combat experience itself. Um, and so there were, uh, there were individuals um, enrolled in that study for whom the, the PTSD was related or more, most directly associated to a non-combat related event. Uh, the majority, however, it was a combat related uh, traumatic experience. And, and the reason why we um, established those inclusion and exclusion criteria for the study was that um, the, the reality that we were very aware of is that many service members do experience multiple forms of trauma. And so being so rigid as to say no, only if it's combat related, it wouldn't necessarily reflect the reality of service members. Age. What was the age range that you treated? Um, so the age range was pretty uh, broad. Um, I, don't, I don't remember uh, the range off the top of my head exactly, but it was about, you know, of course, 18 being the youngest up to about the mid-40s, I think, is uh, the oldest participant we had. And then the average age uh, was in a, sort of around the mid-20s or so. Um, and so, again, we were when you look at sort of like the rank distribution or the age distribution, we were um, seeing the majority of individuals involved in the study um, were about E4, E5 rank, which again sort of reflects what we understand and know about PTSD in the military is that um, there's sort of this clustering around those. It's sort of like you've, you've been in long enough um, that you've deployed once, maybe multiple times, um, you know, but you haven't made it so far in your career um, that, you know, you're kind of at that point in your career where it's like, hey, this is, I think, starting to become a problem. I want to take care of it now so that I can, you know, continue to have a successful career in the future. Right. I, I think maybe the better question for that, I don't know if this changes it, uh, much, but like um, out of the 108, roughly how many do you think were not veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Oh, well, so all of them were veterans of Iraq or Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah. So that was def that was a requirement. Um, okay. They had to have deployed in support of one of those operations, even if the traumatic experience that they were saying was causing them the most trouble. Um, we did not require that to be combat-related. Gotcha. Okay. So, Craig, how... How can what you learned be um, – how can that 
be translated into a practical application, maybe at a community level. So if someone's listening to this and, and they, they're really interested in, in what you've discovered and they want to be able to apply it, you know, inside their, their local community to veterans that are returning, is there a way that they can help veterans get into this sort of therapy or maybe encourage them to go through the same processes within their community? Yeah, so the, you know, in terms of sort of generalizability, I mean, we know that the therapy itself, CPT, uh, works across a diverse range of populations. So it's been tested in civilians and now in active duty military samples. It's been tested in veteran, uh, like VA settings as well. And really the consistent finding is that no matter where we test this therapy, when we compare it to alternative forms of therapy, CPT usually does uh, much better. Um, and so it is sort of a better treatment alternative, even as compared to other active, um, useful therapies. Uh, now, the the sort of downside of that, or I don't know if it's, a, well, maybe not the downside, but, uh, you know, one of the hangups that individuals such as myself have is that very few mental health professionals in our country have actually been trained to use therapies like CPT. Um, you know, I've done lots of trainings across the country over the past several years, and it's truly astonishing the, the very small proportion of uh, mental health clinicians who know how to do this therapy, or in some cases, they've never even heard of it uh, before, which is even more staggering. I mean, research has actually been done on this, and um, what uh, what that research finds is that fewer than half of mental health clinicians, regardless of their discipline, whether they're a counselor, a social worker, a psychologist or psychiatrist, fewer than half are able to clearly identify a treatment that they would use for PTSD which means they, that the majority of clinicians just kind of make it up as they go along, which is pretty shocking. When you look at sort of that subgroup, even among those who at least can identify some form of a treatment plan where they can say, this is kind of consistently what I would do, fewer than half of that group um, will actually identify treatments like CPT as uh, their preferred treatment. Um, then when you look at that even smaller subgroup who at least knows and says that, hey, I have some familiarity with this particular treatment approach for PTSD, um, the majority of those clinicians will actually say, well, even though I know how to do it, I'm not actually, I, I don't consistently provide the therapy to my patients, even if they have PTSD, and that's typically because they have all these concerns about um, making things worse. They they will report, I don't feel confident in my ability to do the therapy effectively, um, et cetera. And there are these misconceptions about the therapy as well. And so when you kind of look at the research that's been done, you know, it's it's shocking to know that something I think we calculated that less than 5% of veterans who go to a community mental health provider can reasonably expect to receive a therapy like this, a, sort of a state-of-the-art, well-validated therapy. Um, and so what I kind of 
I guess, challenge community providers, um, you know, related to this is that this, this is obviously not acceptable. Um, and so if you're a community provider who does not know how to do these therapies, then you need to seek out that training um, and not just attend a workshop, but also receive ongoing consultation and supervision so you can learn how to deliver the therapy effectively. Um, and then likewise, if you're a provider who does know how to do a therapy like CPT, but you've been holding back because of your concerns about, you know, potentially making things worse, especially for suicidal or high-risk uh, service members or trauma survivors, uh, what I would say is that that was really kind of the point of this study is that we now have data from three independent studies, actually, um, consistently finding that these therapies are safe and that they do not increase suicide risk. They actually reduce suicide risk. And so uh, we're fairly confident now that this common barrier um, can sort of be stripped away and clinicians should feel a lot more confident in providing these very, very effective therapies to their patients. Did you know, I think one stigma that veterans have when it comes to emotional and mental health is their willingness to be treated. Um, did you, was there any difficulty in getting the veterans to go through the therapy that they enrolled in? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, yeah, I, I think it's no different from any other uh, form of mental health treatment. Uh, we, we do know that um, individuals with PTSD are um, as a whole more likely to drop out of therapy or to quit uh, before they've gotten very far as compared to patients with other um, conditions. Um, and I think it's because, you know, the, the, the nature of trauma is um, that it is so uncomfortable to the individual that really, I mean, the, what keeps it going is their, um, you know, very, very um, energetic attempts to not think about it, um, to avoid anything that reminds them of the event. Um, and unfortunately, we know that the most effective way to recover is to avoid avoidance, um, to overcome that tendency to suppress or to bury or to put things away. And so um, when I have patients who are going through this treatment with me and they um, are reluctant to engage, um, what we typically do is we talk about how that avoidance really isn't serving them very well in life. Um, and the kind of one of the cliche questions I ask a lot of my patients are, you know, how's that working for you? It's like, well, you know, you've been trying not to think about it for three or four years. Now, I'm sure today is the day it's going to start working. You know, if not today, probably tomorrow, right? I mean, we, we know it's it's just going to take about five years for this to kick in, and it's going to happen any day now. And, of course, uh, they realize that's that's not the case at all. Um, but they've learned that this is sort of a, a good short-term solution, even though it's not working over the long term. And a big part of doing this treatment effectively as a clinician is helping trauma survivors to understand that it's, it's totally understandable that you don't want to think about it. And I know that it's painful and it makes total sense that you don't want to do this. 
Um, and the thing is, you don't have to do it. You know, you don't have to confront this. Um, you can continue to live this life that's clearly not working well for you. Or we could try something different that is going to be uncomfortable for a while. It will be difficult. Um, and I'm not ever going to ask you to like it. I'm not ever going to say or claim that it's easy. Um, I am, however, going to claim that it'll work. Um, and if you're willing to kind of meet me halfway, and if you're willing to be uncomfortable uh, for a while, I think that there will be some benefit to gain. And when I'm very frank and honest uh, with patients, that usually kind of helps them to push through their reluctance um, and their resistance or their uh, concerns about fully engaging in the treatment. Well, wow, I think that you touched on such an important point there with the idea that getting better is uncomfortable, that, you know, improving mental and emotional health is a struggle and it's not pleasant, but it's it's a necessary evil to uh, to feel healthy yeah. again. Well, right. And, I, and I've, I like to use metaphors a lot to kind of help people understand, you know, some of the concepts within mental health. And a metaphor that I use related to this particular topic is um, that of surgery. It's like, you know, under no, under most circumstances, we would not allow someone that we, it's, that is pretty much a stranger that we don't know very well, um, we would not allow them to pick up a knife and cut our body open and stick their hands inside of us, muck around a little bit, and then sew us up together afterwards. Um, you know, because obviously that's not a situation that many of us would think, hey, that's that's definitely something I should do on a day-to-day -day basis. But if we're working with someone who's trained as a surgeon that um, is, is willing to do these uncomfortable um, tasks in a controlled environment where there's support and where, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of an established protocol on how to approach these types of procedures, then all of a sudden this notion of having someone cut us open, stick their hands inside of us and muck around a little bit doesn't quite seem as intimidating. And in fact, we would say, you know what, I know that afterwards I'm going to be in pain, and I'm going to have to take pain medicine for that. And I know it's going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to be limited in my range of motion and I'm not going to be able to be as active anymore. But surgery is a procedure that's going to help improve my quality of life in the long term. And in some ways, I think the process of recovery from trauma really mirrors that where there's going to be a process where a time where it will be uncomfortable, it will be painful. Um, you know, you're going to be asked to do things that otherwise you wouldn't necessarily be doing. But if you are engaging in those activities with a trained professional under controlled, in a controlled environment and they know what they're doing and you trust them, um, then the long-term benefits vastly outweigh the short-term discomfort that you might feel. Craig, we, we've just spent the past half hour talking about uh, the recent study that you've published and what you've learned from it. Uh, to, to wrap up, is there what are you working on now? What questions are you hoping to answer with studies that you're currently doing or um, on the verge of, of conducting? Yeah, well, we have a, a large number of studies underway. I think one of the areas that maybe a common theme across several of our studies is really looking at 
um, sort of the process of emergence of emotional distress and suicide risk in particular. Um, and what I mean by that is we often focus and ask the ask questions related to, well, why do people kill themselves or um, who is going to kill themselves? But a really important question that is sort of implicit that many of us sort of ask subconsciously, um, but we haven't really kind of brought to bear and focus on in our research yet is, well, when are people going to kill themselves? So, you know, it's one question to try to figure out, well, who in this group of, say, a thousand people is likely to die by suicide. Um, but one of the, the things that we want to know is, well, if we know who that person is, well, why do they die on Monday and not Sunday? You know, why why didn't they die the week before, the month before that, you know, even though they were you know, they had depression, they had access to firearms, they had, you know, relationship problems. All those risk factors that we talk about were there on Sunday, but something changed from Sunday to Monday that ended up making Monday a critical transition point for them. And so that's that's a really important question for suicide prevention because if if we kind of know when is that behavior likely to occur? That has significant implications for intervention. Um, you know, if someone's likely to die by suicide tomorrow, we would be doing very different things than if we were um, to be reasonably sure that, well, it's not tomorrow, but maybe it'll be six months from now type of thing. Um, and so that's a big focus right now of several of the projects that we're, we're working on at the NCVS is developing new methods, new ways of analyzing data, new ways of thinking about suicide and PTSD and substance use um, so that we get away from these traditional models where we just, you know, kind of like I always say, we, we're always drawing straight lines. You know, we have, the, the reality is that we have ups and downs in our lives, good days and bad days. And what we've traditionally done in research is we have those ups and downs and then we just try to like find the average and we draw a straight line in between all of those ups and downs. Um, when I think what we're actually starting to learn now is the ups and downs, really that is the pattern. Um, and we have been missing that pattern because we've been so obsessed with straight lines uh, for so long. And so that's kind of the, the new horizon, the things that we're really working on is how do we capture that roller coaster experience that many people have and if we can capture that and if we can understand that mathematically um, and experientially, uh, can we do a better job of preventing suicide? Wonderful. Dr. Craig Bryant, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to me and to my audience. I think that um, in, the, in the pursuit of suicide prevention amongst veterans, it's, uh, it's definitely important to know where we are medically and what, what we're learning uh, on your side of things, even if it's something that we may not be able to apply or truly understand uh, on our own. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share this with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's always wonderful talking with Dr. Brian. He is so insightful and so willing to explain and share his uh, his understanding on the topic and what he's learned. Uh, and that's that's always valuable, especially in this effort to prevent 
veteran suicide and suicide in general. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. There are a lot of podcasts out there, and uh, I just truly appreciate you taking the time to listen to this one. It means a lot to me, and it means a lot to my guests, I can assure you. One too many project.com. That's O N E, the number two many project.com is the website to visit for more episodes and information about me and my project. If you're interested in bringing this message to your live audience, I can be contacted for uh, live speakings or panel discussions, whatever it may be, anything that we can do to get this message in front of the right crowds and in front of enough people uh, to where it can truly be effective. And of course, if you're a social media kind of person, we're on Twitter at one too many project with the same spelling. Stay strong. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.